Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name is Mark Smith and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. Right now we're listening to New Haven, which is the second track from Faulty DL's 2014 album for Ninja Tune, In the Wild. It gives a solid impression of how difficult it is to nail down the New York producer's sound. A hybrid of English and American styles mixed with a touch of IDM and considered song structure. The man born Drew Lossman initially rose to prominence as an American advocate for UK styles like two-step and dubstep. But his impressive knack for songwriting and a seemingly endless reserve of fresh ideas has placed him in a category beyond functional dance music producers. He's seen trends come and go over the last decade, and during this interview at home with RA's Max Pearl, he spoke about how to create a sustainable career as an artist without falling prey to negativity or burnouts. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges at residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. The exchange with Faulty DL is up next. So you arrived on the New York City scene in the mid-2000s, correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, maybe thereabouts, late, yeah, 2008, 2009. And which was sort of considered uh, like the beginning of uh, a dead time in New York City. Mm. Like people sort of consider the mid-2000s as like a, a lull. And so I, I wonder if, if that was your feeling, like, was it lonely for dance music? <laughs> uh, no, is like my quick answer. But I think, you know, what happened was, is I came here and I quickly found a party and it was, there was so much energy around that party that, uh, it, it would be impossible for me to feel like that it, there was a lull, but I wasn't look out, looking outside of it. Honestly, it was dub war. I was going to dub war monthly and then meeting lots of people there, promoters, DJs, producers, all sorts of people, dancers, like, so it felt like there was a real scene for what I wanted to do. And maybe that was just how cool and sort of ahead of the curve that Dub War was. It was bringing over this UK sound, you know? So 
Yeah, no, it really wasn't dead for me. But I know that like in the indie rock scene, people certainly felt like it was dead then. Tell me about uh, about Dub War and Club Love and uh, set the scene for me a little bit. Yeah. Club Love uh, was an amazing place that was underneath a barber shop or adjacent to it, uh, sort of on the northwest corner of Washington Square Park, NYU territory. And uh, yeah, it was cool because there was uh, there was this real sort of you had you had to go downstairs. It was kind of this dark, not scary element, but this dark sort of like what was waiting down there for you sort of feeling every time you entered the club. Um and there was a room that was called the Fraggle Rock Room that looked like a like a big sort of gerbil run, you know, with like sort of tubes and areas to hang out. Fuzzy walls, as I remember. That's right. Yeah, fuzzy walls, which feel really good, you know, come 3 a.m. You're just like sort of clinging onto the wall and it feels really good sometimes or gross. But uh, but beyond that, what I think what really made the club was the sound system in the booth and the, and the style of the style of sort of dead sounding room. It was just this 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 little box that comfortably fit about 150 people. And often had twice that amount of people in it, but comfortably fit a hundred dancers, and had a lot of elements from the old um, Paradise Garage in the booth, including like uh, maybe the Bozak was from it, or the or the or the 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 monitors in the booth might have been from that club. In any event, there was like there was just like history in that room and excellent sound people running that show and light people too oh what was her name she would like shoot a laser pen through crystals at the crowd and it was incredible and i don't think i appreciated it enough then but like looking back on it now man she was into it but yeah it was great and i would walk down there and you know fashion was different then this is 12 years ago. like everything was different about all sorts of things politics fashion music but i really felt on a good night you could go down there and get sort of lost in the crowd and just be one of many in a way and I never felt like I stood out awkwardly or anything and I was actually even straight edge at the time like I wouldn't drink I would just drink water and sort of hang out in the corner and I met uh, Dave Q who was running it and we became fast friends and he uh, let me play many times and uh, yeah we're still in touch but the party unfortunately is no longer yeah I feel like Dave Q is sort of someone who deserves his own RA exchange <laughs> as like a sort of an unsung hero of, of the bass music and hardcore continuum here in New York City. Yeah. I mean, I like to tease him that he created dubstep in America. <laughs> you know, what it has become now. This sort of gross... Well, whatever. It's not gross. It is what it is. Some people like it. But uh, yeah, he brought over Scream and Banga and Code 9. And and uh, did he bring Benny Ill over as well? I mean, he brought all, all, all these producers over for the first time. Vaccine, you know, so many, so many people that had never played in New York and that had never heard it before. So, partially responsible, definitely. You're from New Haven, Connecticut? Yeah. Is that right? That's right. Um, and uh, you played in a bunch of bands before you landed on making electronic music by yourself. I did, yeah. One, really only one, one band that was sort of semi-serious. It was called Luggage. And for a short while, there was an umlaut over the U, and it was Lugage. You know, so just basically making really bad decisions together. <laughs> um, but I played bass, and it was fun. And I was just getting into electronic music. This is like 2002 to 2005. So I'm playing bass, but I'm also listening to Square Pusher and stuff like that. And I'm thinking, wow, I could really take this a lot further. Or I could at least get into like programming some other things. But it was fun being in a band. And it was fun collaborating and jamming. And pl we played so many shows. We played like twice a week at least. You know, mostly locally. But um, 
Got to play this one venue called Toad's Place, which is pretty famous in New Haven, which is where all these acts would come through. You know, growing up in New Haven, you're like right in between New York and Boston. And if you want to see anything decent, you got to go to one or the other, often New York. But there was this place, Toad's Place, that could get these bands on like an off night in between those weekends, you know. So you would see like the entire Wu-Tang Clan on like a Wednesday night. And, you know, and it's just amazing. Or like George Clinton up close. And I knew the bouncers, I knew the club owners, I would go hang out upstairs, I would run downstairs and I'd, I'd get back into sort of the dressing rooms area and I would hang out with uh, whoever was around and would put up with me. <laughs> I met Razor Sharp, the keyboard player for George Clinton. We had a fun night together one time. You know, I was like 17, 18. It was cool. I really liked it. Um, and then your first solo records, well, I guess they weren't records, they were digital releases online yeah but your first solo releases were these sort of insane like break core idm splatter break um splatter break <laughs> yeah i like splatter break that's good um, um the first thing actually i think well yeah the first things were digital but there was a cd at one point in like 2007 but uh yeah digital splatter break releases i guess on, on various labels that would have me myspace era stuff you know uh, what were you listening to at the time that was drawing you in that direction? Um, I was really getting into Planet Mew. And I think at the time they were doing a lot of breakcore, you know, listening to Shit Mat and uh, Venetian Snares, but also also Square Pusher and stuff like that. Um, so the manic sort of style breaks was really interesting to me. felt like there was a lot, a lot of room to to sort of do your own thing there because a lot, you know, I, I really was like melody focused at the time as well. The drums were important, but I wanted to, I wanted to sort of bring my own thing to it. I don't think I ever really nailed it there, but looking back, it was just years of practice until I really found my sound, I think. Um, but I, yeah, I even sent a lot of that stuff to a lot of labels back in the day and had some promising feedback. One of them being Mike Paradinas and that started that relationship. Although none of that splatter break stuff, which is the only way I'm going to call that music from now on, by the way. You're welcome. And <laughs> none of that ever, uh, none of that ever really saw the light of day. Um, were you part of any kind of like IDM scene? Like, was there? Were you, if you can even call the American IDM movement a scene? Like, were you in touch with uh, Kid Six Hundred Six or any of the Tiger Beat Six people? Or? No, and that's that's a really good point. Like, I was just listening to Kid So Six the other day, and Miguel, I think it is, and. Uh, and 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 we we've maybe exchanged had one exchange since then, but I, I no I didn't know anyone then you know and I know also uh, Travis Machine Drum was like had been active for years, so there was Schematic yeah and all these other labels, um, but no I didn't know any of these people. I mean MySpace was my first sort of internet connection to other producers, and that was just online. I, I didn't meet anyone, and definitely in New Haven there was no one really doing it. There was one person named Peter Edwards, uh, a.k.a. Um, Casper Electronics, who's a pretty well-known circuit bender. And so we would do some circuit bent music together and stuff. But that was really it. That was it. I'd come into New York, though. I would start taking trips into New York to see groups like Plaid or whoever would come play a show here. Those, that was my, that was my like, first foray into seeing electronic music live. Or Amon Tobin or something like that. Um, do, you, do you look back on those records like, wow, like what a mess or do you actually I remember someone once told me I asked them do you think you're a better artist because you're in practice and you've been touring and you have so much experience and I remember she told me no in fact I want to get back some of that youthful energy that was a rule-breaking instinct yeah yeah that's a good answer 
I'll, I'll choose that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, but like that's yeah, that's that's I think that's true, and and I talk to people about that now because the the longer you stay, sort of in this in this game, so to speak, the the more second guessing or the more thought you put into things, and maybe maybe it's too much thought, you know. Um, definitely just acted on on impulse back then, which I've always done in my life, and for the most part, it's gotten me good things. Sometimes it's gotten me into trouble with, in other areas, but uh. Yeah, I, no, I, so so I don't regret any of it. But yeah, the music itself is like, oh, it's kind of trash. But um, but but it was super fun. I, what's funny to me is how much I believed in it. But that that still happens. Like, I'll I'll listen to something I did two weeks ago that at the time I thought was genius. <laughs> and I listen back now and I think, what was I thinking? You know? Yeah, it's hard to self-edit, and it's also hard to to know to know which voice to listen to in your head. Are you ever tempted? to do the more straightforward house and techno thing just because you know it will sell and you'll be able to get these big festival bookings like do you ever Mm. are you ever tempted by doing something more traditional because you know there's commercial potential or you know what i mean yeah no i do know what you mean um sure yeah i mean uh but i think i've always made stuff that's been sort of house adjacent Someone said I was a house adjacent producer the other day. I thought that was pretty cool. I'd never heard that before. Is that a thing? House adjacent? It is now. It is now. Splatter break. Um, but Splatterhouse. Uh, Splatterhouse. Yeah, right? Splatterhouse. I mean, like, so that's so I, you know, I think I found out at some point that I couldn't do. I, I'm easily influenceable from what I listen to, but I'm not. I actually don't make good copies of other ideas. Like it ends up coming out a bit weird in my own way, which which I think is great. And I think once people realize that that's a strength of theirs, then you can listen to that and accentuate that. But um, I, you know, yeah. I mean, there's been so many points in my career, if I can use that word, that I I I, I was faced with sort of a couple decisions, and I did not pick the decision that would make my life financially more secure. I mean, there's been entire tours with bigger artists as support that I could go on that I've just said no to in the end because I felt uncomfortable about the whole thing. I didn't really want to be associated with that or I just felt like I couldn't take it on in my life because I'd rather sit around with my friends at home, you know? So not a great financial decision, but like it is what it is. And also, you know, I think there's so much that goes involved to like that's involved in a promoter deciding who they're going to book for something that often the music has nothing to do with it or, or not as much to do with it, which, which is cool. Cause that means that a lot of, a lot of different people are getting opportunity that didn't have it perhaps before, but uh, I'm not one to judge what is mainstream or not and, and whether or not it deserves to get uh, festival booking, you know? Yeah. yeah. But you've never, I mean, this sounds like a cliche, but you've, you've never really fit into any of the boxes. Yeah. And I wonder what impact that would have on your career if you were more marketable as one thing or another, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, well, well, so, so let's say I fit into one of those boxes and I had like a, one of those mile long DJ booking lists, you know, where I'm like booking like eight months in advance or 10 months in advance. Is that attractive to you? Not at all. On one hand it is financially. Yeah. It's amazing. And like, I would also, I mean, if I was that busy, I'd probably be getting even more money per show. But I just, I can't take that on. Like, I, I will sit in a studio and do 10-hour days with someone for weeks on end and be happier than a pig in shit. But uh, if you tell me I've got to leave on Friday to go play this show somewhere, I'm, I'm shaking and I'm freaking out and I don't want to go anywhere, you know? 
Um, and it wasn't always like that, but something did shift. And this has been an interesting sort of like thread that I've heard other people talk about. Is it mental health? Is it anxiety? Is it this? Is it that? You know, and I, I don't really, I think it's all of the above, but it's also um, decide the type of life you want to have and do it and don't be afraid that it's not what other people are doing. You know, like the good things that have come out of my career have come out of me being myself, not out of me copying anyone else or trying to like do anything else. Like that's never really worked out. Yeah, rather than being like, well, the measure of success is a million gigs and, you know, a million yeah. flights. And, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But more power to them. Like, that's dope. You know, I watch, I know friends of mine that do that and some of them, uh, some of them are falling apart and some of them are really strong and they're just crushing it. And it's, and it's awesome. And I have a real joy for them. Um, and that's another thing that's happened is that I've learned how to, to just be happy for other people doing what it is that they want to do. If they're happy doing what they want, if they have what they want, you know, but if that thing is, that zeitgeist, you know, whatever. That's fine, though. Good for them. That's awesome. I just hope that they're finding healthy ways to cope with all the traveling and stuff because that can get really hectic. I don't know if that answered your question, but trust me, I think about this all the time. Yeah, 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 yeah definitely. Yeah. I you mean, know? it's yeah, it's like crossroads where you you really have to decide if that's the kind of life you want to live. You know? Yeah. Well, so okay, so then it's like, how do I make a living, right? You know, and there's 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 only so many other ways. If it's not playing shows, it's uh, is it doing a lot of remixes? Is it making a lot of records? Is it producing for other people? Is it running a label? There's lots of other ways to sort of to put together a real living because I have to make a living doing this, or I need to get a full time job and music becomes a hobby again. And I wouldn't say I'm unemployable, but it's been a long time since I've worked for someone else. And I'm not exactly excited about that idea of showing up on time and listening to what someone I, like. I don't take orders very well, <laughs> you know, but uh, maybe one of the happy mediums is producing for other folks, which I'm just starting to get into because I'm, I'm happy to take uh, criticism from from someone. I'm, I'm like trying to make their dream come true for them. You know, like that, that only helps. So, uh, since we're on the subject, mm -hmm. um, you are executive producing the forthcoming Mickey Blanco album. Yeah. Is that so something we're allowed to talk about? Yeah. It, right. so it sounds so, uh, sounds so serious hearing you say it, but, uh, <laughs> I'm a serious guy. Hey, can you tell, can you tell me about what that's been like and where you're at in the process? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, it's like, it's, it's a hard thing to articulate because it's meant so much to me. I'll try my best to put words to it, but essentially how it's come about is me just is me cold calling Mickey with a song and an email, not hearing anything for a little while, but maybe a couple months later getting an email that was just like, whoa, what is this? This is amazing. And I'm like, it's yours. And he's like, oh, thanks so much. And I'm also like, hey, you know, uh, I've got this album I've made, but I don't think it's time for me to do another one. Check it out. Let me know if there's anything else you want. And Mickey's like, yeah, I want this, 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 this and that. I'm like, all right, cool. Ironically, now a month or so into this project, a lot of those tracks that, that Mickey wanted were not even, I don't even know if we're going to use, or maybe in the future we will, but it started a, a conversation and a relationship that has just been so incredible. Like waking up really excited about music, sort of in love with music again, in love with the idea of like working hard on something and, and having to put the work in because mixing vocals is a whole nother beast. Like recording it and mixing it is so different from just making a track, banging out a track and headphones are on my own late at night or whatever. Um, so I'm in over my head, but in a great way. And in that, in that way that I think David Bowie said so famously, like if, you know, if you're, 
If you're just struggling to breathe, if you're a little bit underwater and your head's just poking out, that's like where you're going to make something good, you know? And uh, I keep telling myself that. And I think we're going to, I think we're going to nail it. <laughs> it's cool. So, um, are you, do you also have a hand in some of the songwriting aspects? Like, are you like, oh no, like I think the hook should go like this or no, I think this part should come after that part. Sometimes like Timberly and, uh, and pitch wise and things like that. But when it comes to the actual lyric writing, I mean, I think Mickey is just so good at it and thinks of things that I could never think of. Um, although the atmosphere is so, is so comfortable that I, I come up with things and I pitch ideas and some, some stick and some don't, but, uh, well, you know, it's interesting, you know, there's this worry. It's like, are the tracks like, uh, you know, are you going to mix the vocals better? Is it going to sound good? Is it going to sound good enough? And I'm like, yeah, I, what you basically need to do is let me have the tracks on my computer. Let my, let me lock myself away for like a month and just sit there in my underwear and like tinker and tinker and trial and error and try things and try things it's like such a boring process if you watched me mix vocals you'd be like yeah this isn't fun at all <laughs> see you later let me know when it's done it's really boring and it's why I, I hesitate to send working versions to people you know it's like let me just get it there um have you been listening to like rap or vocal music in order to steal and and borrow techniques for vocal production uh yeah actually i wanted to interrupt you and be like well i'm always listening to rip, to rap and uh and hip-hop and, and 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 rock and stuff like that and like and like, like the beach boys haven't left my playlist for for years now in fact before this project started i was i was already singing on stuff none of it's been released but i part of that album had my vocals on a lot of the tracks and maybe one day there'll be another version of it that'll come out but um but yeah, yeah, so much. Like the, it, it's it's like a, it's an art form in and itself, and you can't expect to just rock up and know how to mix vocals. Like you gotta listen, you gotta try all these things and read and research and experiment and and also invest. You know, I got this crazy microphone just for this project, basically. And uh, but you know, it's gonna pay for itself, and it's really awesome. Yeah, it's interesting when you when you listen to something that is produced by someone who clearly has spent a long time working with vo vocals versus don't. Yeah. Like there are all these little things that you're like, oh my God, I never would have thought of that. Like um, there's that suction effect of the reverse vocal going into when the vocal starts. Mm. You know what I mean? Just like <laughs> yeah. these little things like, <laughs> yeah. uh, and you don't know it's missing until you hear truly beautiful vocal production. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. But also, but then I listen to stuff that's like made in someone's bedroom, you know, with one mic, just like an SM57, you know, a cheap microphone, and it's just sort of blown out punk style. And like, if the song sounds good, it's good. If it has a vibe and it's true, right? It's like, that's like Hemingway, right? It's like, if it's true and it has a vibe, then it's good. And so, yes, we could sit in a studio and I could pay someone two grand a day and use all these different microphones to really make it sound amazing. And on some tracks, it'll call for that. But on some tracks, it's like, put the distortion on, compress the hell out of it, and it's punk, you know, and that's awesome. And that's a vibe. And sometimes you get lucky. And sometimes you're like, oh, no, I, I should have spent more time on that. <laughs> Are you more sample-oriented or a synth guy? Way more sample-oriented, yeah, yeah, for sure. But uh, maybe going through some growing pains with that. I think as I've released things over the years and gotten a little bit more well-known, like I got to a point with some of the Ninja Tune releases where they were like, we can't release this sample. We can't, we don't want to clear this or we can't afford that or whatever, or, or they were too nervous about it. So you sort of, you can hit a wall, I think, if you're going really egregiously. And, uh, and I'm just an in-the-box sort of, 
producer. I'm in a lot of its programs, lots of little programs that do very specific things, you know, and then reason is sort of at the center of it all. Um, but yeah, I got a, I, I'd much rather have analog instruments. I got a piano and I got my flute and I have my bass and I have a guitar and stuff like that. And I've had other woodwinds and vocalists, you know, I, I prefer all that to stay sort of musical in a way. Is it nice to get out of the box? Yeah, it's really nice. So the way I have my piano set up over there behind you is so great because it's nowhere near my computer. I literally, I I swivel my chair over there and there's no computer and I wake up some days and I make music with my coffee before I've done emails or generally after I've done emails. But, and I just make it and I don't record it. And it's like, I've made music for myself and then it's gone. It's sort of a, is that Zen? I don't know what that is. That's like a weird philosophy, right? It's like you make something, the impermanence of it is sort of attractive, you know? And I'm not worrying about who's going to hear it or if it's going to get released or not. I mean, I worry about that stuff later. Trust me, I do. But it's nice to just yeah, make it and yeah. have it go away. You're also not making it with like the pipeline in mind of like, okay, this is going to get produced and then this is going to get distributed and then it's going to be played in this particular context. It's yeah. like you're not thinking about five steps ahead. Whereas yeah, I think inherently with something like techno, you have to keep in mind the room in which it's going to be played because you have to think about the dynamics, mm. the crowd, the time of night. You know what I mean? And there's something beautiful about doing it without considering the the way it'll be reproduced. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and can't you tell just by looking how messy, like how much stuff is in this room? Can't you tell I don't make techno? <laughs> like if I made techno, the walls would be like super clean and there'd be like two objects in here. And one of them, like you couldn't even like, you couldn't look at. It just was like, it was like a, like a statue or something. Angular minimalist design. Yeah. No, 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 I'm like, give me some, yeah, give me some, yeah, give me some uh, soft edges. But, um, I, yeah, I still worry about stuff, but again, it's the stuff that I don't worry about that I just make, you know, my cousin is a writer and a movie and a, and a filmmaker. And he just sent me an email that was so hilarious. And I know he's writing a film right now. And I was like, are you writing like this? And he was like, no, I was just trying to make you laugh. And I was like, well, I think there's a musical equivalent of this. And it's not thinking. It's just like making stuff, you know, and then putting it out there. And I want to get back to that even more and more. You know, I don't know about the putting it out there part, but the just making, you know, don't be afraid to go there. Make everything. Edit later. I didn't go to art school. I didn't go to music school. A lot of my friends did, and they have MFAs. And I talk to them all the time. I'm like, so what did I miss by not going to art school? And they talk about critiquing and all that. But one thing that my buddy Tom, who's done a lot of my artwork over the years, Tom Simon, he says, like, don't be afraid to go there. Make everything. Even if you think it's awful or cheesy or whatever, just make it. Finish it. No one has to hear it. No one's going to know you made it if you don't want. Just make it. And then decide later if it's shit or not, you know? You put out... Elysia Crampton's first record. Hmm. And that's something I want to talk about. Um, how did you identify Elysia Crampton? Like, what, what made you say, like, oh, my God, this person is a, a massive talent? Yeah, yeah. Like, what was the spark that you identified? Yeah, well, you know, um, it, was, it was E plus E releases that I really liked, her, 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 uh, her prior producer name. And I'd gotten in touch after I had heard... Um, heard like fire gut and a couple other couple a couple other really beautiful tracks and i wanted a remix uh for a track of mine uh this was 2013 or 2014 and i was emailing with elijah at first and then a couple weeks later i was emailing with alicia and we were talking a little bit about what was going on with us and stuff and uh she did this incredible remix for me that came out on ninja tune around the release of my album in the wild i think that was 2014 
Um, and I just said, I put it out there. I was like, you know, I, I would love to work with you. I've started this label. If there's anything you'd like to put out there, um, you know, I'm all ears, like anything, anything you want to do. And, and it was always just very sort of polite and with our, and we had a nice rapport, a nice back and forth. And the funny thing about Alicia is I've always felt like, well, why hasn't a big label just come along and like really, you know, swooped her up yet? And, and I'd even love to help that. I've told her, I was like, if you want me to help you get in touch with any big labels, let me know. You know, that's assuming she does, she's not doing what she wants to do. And she's definitely, I think, crushing it and doing what she wants to do. But, um, in any event, she sent me, uh, like a, like a, you know, a 30 minute MP3 that would, that was American Drift just as one sort of song. And she sent it to me right before I got on a flight coming back from London. And I must have listened to it maybe five or six times on that flight. And I had already drafted the email I wanted to send by the time I land and hit send the minute I got, I think, uh, service back on my phone and said, I want to do this. I would love to do this. I, I, we can do anything you want, artwork, you know, uh, you know, any, any way you want to release this. I'm super happy about it. I'd love to, I'd love to do this together. And I think some other labels were talking to her at the time. So I just would. I would always be very helpful, you know, and this is the way I've worked with all my artists. It's basically an amalgamation of all of my relationships with label heads in the past, sort of the best parts of those of those individual relationships, I think. And one of them is just being open and uh, and, you know, and ready to hear no, but also excited to help out. And and Alicia basically just said to me, you know, Drew, you're the only. Well, you've just been so so honest and, and forthcoming with me i really want to do this record with blueberry and that was like the greatest day you know it was a real turning point for blueberry a lot of prior releases releases had been um me hitting up some ogs that i was just a big fan of like Digo and todd osborne and luke vibert and stuff you know and i was like i really need to branch out and get some some new some get back to some new blood in here because that's why i started the label was for bird you know that was his first album um and he's doing something else for me now, actually. But uh, yeah, we we've kept in touch. Uh, in touch, I, I had I had dinner with Alicia maybe six months ago, or maybe it was even more than that. Now, when she she was in New York one night, and uh, we met up at Hooters in Midtown at like one a.m. It was really fun, and uh, her suggestion, and uh, you know, I think she's one of the she's a giant. She's a musical giant both in thought and in performance. If you haven't seen Alicia perform, you haven't seen like what electronic music can be right now. It's so much different than, than, than sort of the old tropes. And also like the guitar. And there's like, there's some drama and theater involved in her performance. Her vocal range is wild, you know? I mean, I, yeah, I hope we get to work together again. I just, you know, I'll always be very grateful that I got to put that out, you know? And it was it was great for the label, and I think I think it did really well by her as well. So, success all around, you know. As a label owner, do you um, are you pretty hands on? Like, for instance, do you offer feedback and say, "Oh, I think this should be a minute longer," or "I don't like that baseline," or do you handhold through the process at all? Um, sometimes, only if it feels like that's wanted by the producer. But generally, no. I mean, I I'd, I'd rather say to someone keep working or do you have anything else to hear then then give specific feedback on a song unless they've asked for that it can it can really go either way i'm ha- i'm happy to give that feedback but then again what do i know you know I, I i'm really interested in in signing minds that are so unique and that they're just thinking differently from me anyway and they're coming up with melodies and and rhythms that 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 are way outside of my own wheelhouse so i don't really know how to critique it i'm like yeah this is weird this is cool let's do it you know 
sort of first thought, best thought. If I hear something and I love it, it's good enough. <laughs> yeah, totally. You know, I don't think I've ever really given very specific. I've been like, oh, can I have the stem so I can make an edit or a remix of it? I've done that on a few tracks for people and sort of done what I wanted to do. But yeah, I'm not uh, I'm not interested in really in really changing anyone's music too much. And then in another interview, I think it was uh, it might have been you and Square Pusher sitting down for mm. a one on one. You mentioned the press aspect of things and specifically press releases being kind of stressful for you because I th- you mentioned that every, I mean, an album is expected to have a story. Yeah. And part of a PR person's job is sort of weaving that tale and sort of giving it a conceptual or narrative backing Yeah. because that's sexy and that sells. Right. Um, is that something you think about a lot? Well, it's interesting you say that because I actually, I think traditionally that's the PR person's job, but I don't think PR does that anymore. PR send a lot of emails and they receive emails and they forward you ideas and things that are coming in. But um, I think the label and the artist are the ones who sort of come up with the story. Yeah, it's incredibly stressful, you know, if, if uh, for, for like different reasons. It's, it's stressful because the truth is when I'm like getting ready to put out an album, you know, here's 45 minutes of the best music I made to the best of my ability in the last 18 months. And I feel I've, and I, I deem it worthy to release. And hopefully I think it's the best thing I've ever done. What more do you need to know? <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't like it. I don't want to hear the the story of how Aphex Twin made his last album. I just want to hear it, you know. Um, but also, music is, uh, you know, comes in waves, how, how, how politicized music is. And right now, it's like highly politicized. So if it's a way of you telling your story, then that's awesome, you know. I'm not sure that I have a hand in that, in that game, so to speak, or anything that interesting about, about myself politically that I want to shout about. I mean, I've got ideas and other thoughts and stuff, but um, maybe maybe the idea of me just saying, here's my philosophy at the moment and here's the music that's backing that, that's just not that interesting to me, you know? I mean, does it sound good or does it not, you know? That's all that's sort of important to me uh, about my own music. Yeah, I mean, relationship with press is like, that could be a whole other exchange, but um, the short of it is that it it changes as you stay in, in music for longer you know it, it it comes and it goes and you're in fashion and then you're out of fashion and maybe you get another so if you catch a few waves and troughs so to speak you, you can get a little hardened and seasoned by the whole thing and maybe turned off by sort of those things and and i think i'm at a point now where i'm, I'm way more open and just relaxed about that stuff i used to be really because because when you start if you're lucky enough to get some heat behind you in the beginning you get shot right up and you're on all these people's year end of year lists and you're on all the cool gigs and you're doing remixes for crazy people you're opening for radiohead you're doing all this stuff a year later you might have zero gigs and no records and you might you might have been dropped by the label that did the other stuff you know so there's no real job security in what we do you know and some of that has to do with if press is writing about you or not some of it doesn't it's in that same category as like try not to think about it as much you know try to just make your music try to just do your thing but it's hard it's really hard you know do you read your reviews yeah definitely not all of them but a lot of them yeah for sure and do you do you take them into account or do you do you have a 
a lot of people have a pretty antagonistic relationship to their reviewers. You know, they've like pretty hardened at this point, like you said, where they're like, yeah. fuck the music media. <laughs> like they're a bunch of parasites just leeching onto the real artists. Um, yeah, but the truth is, is I actually know like of the music reviewers that I know personally is a really high percentage of quality in that group that are really good and that have been doing it for a long time. And I, and I think care as much about the reviews as much as the producers do that go into that music. So yeah, maybe don't think about the ones that are, 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 are not making the most insightful comments on your music. But, but if I get some really good constructive criticism from someone that I respect and have like had a back and forth with for years, like Joe Muggs, for instance, someone who's been writing about my music since like 2008 for a good decade now, like I'm going to listen to what Joe says, you know, um, might not change anything. I don't know. It's so funny. I mean, that can become your vibe antagonistic, right? That can become what you're known for. And I don't think that's a very good thing. You know, it, it doesn't really work. It doesn't really work. And you're allowed to sort of go through that and figure out that that doesn't work. And hopefully people forgive you, <laughs> you know, hopefully you come out on the other end and you still get a shot and you still get a hand and you still get Delta Delta set of cards again, you know. There's some people who have like a kind of wise antagonism. And I think like Anthony Bourdain is a great example mm. of someone who was like antagonistic uh, in like a very intentional and and like wise way. Yeah. Um, that's not like it's not bitter, but it is kind of mean. I don't know. I feel like there's a way to pull it off. But genuinely, generally, I think you're right. You're doing not- it, doing it smart. Yeah, no, for sure. Um and I think everyone appreciates wit and being clever. But, uh, you know, I have this deeper philosophy in life um, that's hard because I'm, I'm, I'm connected to family and loved ones and friends that keep me grounded. But I have a serious streak inside of me that is a bit anarchic. Anarchic? Anarchaic? Anarchic. <laughs> Thank you. Antarctic. And uh, it's very cold. No. Um, but I have this part of me that... that wants to act on every first impulse and not think about anything else. So what that means is once a conversation has started about artwork, I feel like the art is no longer relevant. Some people would say the art is there to start the conversation. I think that once there's once once people are writing about it and talking about it, I feel like the moment, the artistic moment, the beautiful moment is completely gone. And and that's 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 for good reviews and bad reviews. You know what I mean? Um, I just think that it would be really beautiful if you could just make something and have it just exist purely alone, like this sort of pure art form that isn't uh, isn't at all colored by any sort of commentary around it. I mean, it has problems with it, this philosophy, but... Well, it's interesting because often... on the same token often the writing about the art object is what canonizes it or elevates it or creates a mythology around it yeah that is that's what elevates it to greatness you know what i mean yeah 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 Um, for sure but but here's the thing but what should really decide if something's great just you your eyes and your ears and whatever else you're using to experience something right i mean uh i don't want to be told what's great I really don't. I don't want to be told what's bad either. I hate the news. You know, I hate all this stuff. I want to be able to make my own decisions. And we are increasingly all as a human race coming to a place where we're losing our our own free thought. We're all influenced by whatever what other people are thinking and saying online. And there's a collective sort of hive mind 
mentality, mob mentality and, and virtue seeking element uh, that 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 clouds the the intake of information, you know? So if you don't believe in criticism as a way of saying if something is good or bad, or you don't believe that there should be arbiters of taste, do you still think that writing about art and music has a role? Yeah, definitely. I do. Uh, because like you said, it's the way that so many of us do find out about things. So I am at odds with this. But, you know, if so if our tools get to a point where we can, we can share things without anyone writing about it, would that be good? You know, I don't want to take away the profession of, 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 of a lot of folks that write about stuff. And like, it's still very important. And I read articles on RA and other sites that I love and that I, and that I want to check out. It's tricky. I don't know. I feel like you can only only allow so much of yourself to be persuaded by someone else's thoughts before you don't have your own opinion anymore of something, you know. But but so okay, so what's a really good review? A really good review just does a good job of getting you to the artwork, I think. Exactly. You know? I agree. Yeah, I think that's what's really good. Um of like illuminating the insights and drawing your eye or your ear to what aspects of it yeah. make it great. And if no one wrote about my music, then I wouldn't have a career. So it is what it is. Have you ever had uh, a significant creative block that you've had to push through? Um, I mean, you're so prolific that the answer is probably no. But Well, uh, I mean, for me, uh, 24 hours of not being able to do something can feel like a significant block. Um, and that started very early on by implementing what I felt was a good work ethic, mostly by coming from a long line of people that work like hard nine to fives. And I did before music work, like show up and, and do a lot of manual labor jobs and some other things too. I taught as well, but like all these different kinds of like draining jobs where you put so much of yourself into it. So uh, if I'm doing music, I got to do that as well. And if I spend a day and I can't get anything going at the end of the day, I feel like, what did I do? And as I'm now 35, it's no longer a little, what did I do? It's like a, what am I doing with my life? <laughs> you know, it gets bigger. Um, I think uh, generally what happens if I feel like I am at a moment of, of writer's block, it's because I'm, I'm sort of abusing the same musical system over and over again. And I'm not, I'm not getting outside of my comfort zone and trying new things. It might be as simple as updating a bit of software, getting a new synth or a new instrument, working with someone else. I mean, there's so many ways to, to get yourself out of your own way to keep it going. And that's like advice I would give to people is to just like literally physically try and do something different. Um, also, you know, I hang out with some producers who are like, yeah, I just can't write anything. I'm like, all right, well, what'd you do today? And they're like, well, I got coffee. And then I went to the gym and then I went food shopping. Blah, blah, blah. And I was like, well, did you just sit at your computer? Did you like physically get there and try? And that's at least Sometimes I feel like up to 50% of the battle is like just getting yourself there, having good practices, you know. It's good to hear that someone thinks I'm prolific because I think often that I'm, I know what my days look like. And I know when I'm like, if I'm sitting down and that PlayStation is turned on by 2 p.m., it was not a productive day. <laughs> you know what I mean? Anyways. Well, it's interesting because to talk about creative routines, a lot of people will tell you, you should go to the gym. You should run errands because these things get you, get your mind going and they get you into some kind of, you know, like circadian cycle or whatever. And sitting in your house in your sweatpants may not be the best way for some people to get their ideas out. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. it's interesting that you say like, you know, some people 
over structure their days because otherwise they feel like they're floating and they're lost in space yeah yeah um no definitely go to the gym go food shopping like take care of yourself those are both forms of therapy in a way um but uh also get yourself in front of your music making you know put yourself in the captain's chair get there you know put that into the schedule as well um but you know the gym is a funny thing because uh part of its vanity but but it really is an incredible form of therapy you know when you're in the gym and you see someone with that thousand thousand yard stare and they're just like they are deep in some crazy thought and then you see them like rep out 10 reps of like bench press or whatever it is they're doing and you're like cool they just got through that little uh they just burst that cloud you know um and it was something that was happening to me when i was getting ready to put out heaven is for quitters my last faulty deal album this is like late 2016 i was like you know what this is going to come out I'm not going to get the press that I would like or whatever, probably. All these things are going to are gonna happen that feel like they're outside of my control. I was sort of craving some form of control. And it came out on my own label. So I had 100% creative control. But I meant like, I need a little more of control of something in my life. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to join the gym across the street. And I joined it and I went every day for like six months. Like it was insane. I got addicted to it. And I completely transformed my body. I had like lower back pain i had anxiety i had all these all these physical ailments and i'm now 35 and in the best shape of my life um and i ride my bike every day and i'm out and i'm more and i'm more active and that felt incredible just to i was like if i don't have control over my music career in some aspects of it at least i have control of what happens in this gym you know and it can be anything you know pick up another hobby do something else too i think that's really important one of the things you just suggested was changing your setup or introducing a foreign element or a new method or a new technique. You said you just updated your your copy of Reason, which mm-hmm. was from like the early 2000s. You had Reason 3. Right. And now you're rocking Reason 10. Yeah. So over the course of a few months, you've jumped uh, like 13 years into the future. Yeah, it's cool. I remember hearing about VSTs and being like, what kind of uh, STD is that? I can't use any of those. <laughs> What's a VST? Now I have so many VSTs. No. Um, yeah, it's cool when you let a long time go um, and then you update and all of a sudden you're brought into into the present because um, there's been a lot of inva- advancements. I tried a couple things. You know, I tried Reason 4 at one point. I tried 6 for about a week. And all of it was such a, uh, a huge change to the, the GUI um, that I... Uh, that I freaked out, like the simple key commands that I always knew. My flow was interrupted and I was like, not today. So I would get back on version three and just keep going until you'd get frustrated by like, you can't print audio into reason version three, you know, like you'd have to start the song over at the beginning of the sample to hear the whole thing. Even if it starts two minutes in, you'd have to start at the beginning of the triggered part of it. Just silly things like that. So the workflow has gotten incredibly quicker. Um, And that, you know, I yielded me about an album and a half so far, if not more. So it's done its job for sure. And what do you think um, introducing the organic instrumentation like the flute and the piano has done for your process? I mean, you said earlier that it was nice to be able to swivel around and get out of the headspace of being mm-hmm. in the box. But um, what what do you think it's done to introduce that more traditional musical element? Well, it's uh, uh, it's it's just made me a better engineer and a better musician as well. I mean, recording real audio is way different from playing a soft synth on your computer because you're wrangling with so many different points of connection. There's so much electricity that's involved and EQing and different things that are just you never have to never have to worry about when you're just playing uh, on the whatever synth comes with whatever program, you know. 
you know, I, I like I spent a good part of my day watching YouTube tutorials on how to record upright piano, you know, a million different mic techniques. You know, I'm a, you know, tomorrow I'm going to pull it about a, a foot and a half back from the wall and try miking it behind and opening up the, the bottom part of it. I'm just going to experiment with it. And, uh, and once you start doing that, you know, you're not going to yield a final product for a while. So it's like you're walking a mile into the woods. You know, you better, it better be, you have some comfortable shoes on because it's going to be a while before you get anything out of it. Does the, the lifestyle of an artist agree with you just on a day to day basis? Yeah. I mean, the way I do it, it does. You know, I, I think that's a pretty open question in a sense, you know, of what, what that can be. I basically, I need to have a balance of good and bad practices to feel sort of fulfilled. And it's changed a bit as I've gotten older. I think I'm more sensible now, but you know, everything from just your daily routine to like taking care of yourself to like used to go to bed at 4am no matter what, even if I wasn't playing to like going to bed at a more reasonable hour and enjoying the early hours of the, of the morning, you know, being very productive at like 8am sometimes, 7am. Um, and the hedonistic aspects going to shows, you know, doing drugs and like, you know, uh, being in a, being in a solid relationship versus sort of just being single and out there, you know, like all these things are always at odds with each other in a lot of ways. And, uh, I don't, I, and luckily I haven't, I've never, I've never, uh, gotten out of control with anything in my adult life. I did when I was a kid, I got really out of control with, with drugs when I was like 15, 16, 17 to the point where I did rehab and detox and all that stuff. And then years and years of uh, 12 step programs. Um, well, it's but, cool that you got it out of the way early. Hey, I think so. But you know, uh, it's funny. My friends always look at me with this weird perplexed, like I'll, I'll go grab a beer or smoke a joint with some friends, whatever. And they'll be like, Drew, you really can't just enjoy that beer without thinking about going over the deep end, huh? And I was like, yes, that's absolutely true. There's always in the back of my mind every time I smoke or drink or do anything that I think I am a few bad decisions away from losing it all again, which is intense, but also good. It's a great safety system. I mean, I'll take the little bit of worry and anxiety over knowing that I'm actually being healthy, you know? Do you think that like the unstructured life of an artist makes that particularly difficult because you can like go out and party and kind of make your own schedule? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And also you get offered things. Like I go to shows all the time and I get offered cocaine and I'm like, I don't want to do any cocaine. Um, that's, I want to go, if anything, I want to go down. That's more, that's more of a personal preference. And I don't, I don't, to be honest, I don't judge you if that's what you do at all. Just don't talk to me too much because you're annoying, but (laughs) you know, do your thing. Um, clubs are an interesting space to occupy in 2018. You know, there's a lot of things going on. There's a lot of layers of, of it's an intersectional spot for a lot of different things that are happening, you know, inside and outside of the body, essentially, Yeah. Yeah. you know, can you, can you uh, expand? Yeah, definitely. Um, uh, first of all, I'm, I'm no longer a young person in the club. I'm not the oldest, but I'm not the youngest in the club. So there's a good generation or two between me and the, and you know, in New York, you got to be you generally 21 to go into some clubs, most clubs. So I'm often 15 years older than a lot of folks in there. So we just have, we're at different places in our life. Also, I, I can't shake off a hangover like you can, a young kid. You know what I mean? Like I wake up and <laughs> it might take me a day or two to recover. And I just don't want to do that. I just want to be able to go to the gym and feel good the next day do you find that new york has uh like a high turnover rate in terms of generations i what i'm referring to is i think that here more than in other cities like 
you can show up a uh, rock shit for three years and then all of a sudden you're at the top of the pile mm. uh, what i've found is that it doesn't take many years of proving yourself and that in fact you can sort of rock it to the top quickly yeah maybe i mean i i, I mean I, I don't know what it's like in other cities though but that, but i would definitely agree with that um, I don't know if that's an overall technology thing where we're at with sharing stuff or if that is a New York specific thing, but that's actually, that's pretty interesting. Yeah. I also thought what you meant by that was just the scenes and there's been since sort of the dubstep thing, then post dubstep and then techno again, <laughs> and then lo-fi house or whatever, you know, there seems to be every, every two years or so a new thing and then you generally if it's good there's a club behind it you know we had we had club love and dub war you know up and well recently there's been bossa nova civic club and lo-fi house i don't know if those two go together or not uh they kind of do in my mind um and it's great so if there's like a good club or two and and a bunch of producers around that and djs then yeah in a couple years it can be huge it can be really big do you ever feel like it's moving too fast and the hype cycle is, is vicious and it, you know, builds people up and breaks them down at an alarming rate? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah. Cause I don't want, I mean, I've, I know what it's like to be built up and then broken down. And, um, I'm lucky that it didn't make me go over the edge. You know, some people can really get, uh, fall into a depression because of that. I mean, I've flirted with depression all the time. Unfortunately, I still do. But uh, and anxiety, and a lot of that has to do with being a freelancer with no job security and a really fickle business. At the end of the day, so yeah, so I hope that young kids, if they go, if they, you know, the the faster they go up, I hope they don't fall that fast as well. But they might not necessarily. I really don't know. That's another thing I've had to remind myself is that if I feel like I'm seeing patterns, I have to be open to the idea that some people are going to break those patterns and they're going to do their own thing, and that's and that's relieving. And I think that's also. It's just endearing, and that, that's a good model to look at. Look at how someone handles something, and then you know what? Goes, you know, fuck it. I'm going to do my own thing. Watch watch me go this way now. Mm-hmm. And they can still ride that wave, you know? I think that's good. One thing I've been thinking about is how, for a lot of us, dubstep was truly an inflection point where something radically different and, like, that was immediately identifiable as drastically different and new and exciting. Um, and a lot of the talk around that is that we haven't really had an upheaval or a shakeup since then. Mm. Do you, do you believe that? Or do you think we're due for one or, or do you think that's fatalistic to say that we haven't had anything that drastic since then? Well, maybe nothing that big. I mean, dubstep comes from things and is an amalgamation of things, but it was definitely a new thing. It wasn't a revival of an older sound like, uh, like, like houses or techno, which keeps coming around every 18 months, you know, and there's new producers that keep coming and do sort of a bit of a fresher take on it or something you haven't heard or, or Nick and acapella you just haven't heard before. But uh, footwork was, was as exciting to me, you know, and juke music as dubstep was, um, uh, I think what Alicia Crampton does and Rabbit and Low Tick and uh, I remember someone said it was called Epic Collage and I don't know if they liked that or not but I think that's a good way of saying it you know um, but if they're not as but dubstep was so big look where it went I was I was at an Applebee's on Flatbush Avenue with Dave Q and Lofa in 2012 or whatever having like $5 margaritas <laughs> and Skrillex is on the screen receiving a Grammy and shouts out South London boys or whatever making dubstep and Lofa is just like 
you know, mouth draw. And I was just like, right, so that's where that went. That's how big that got, you know? I don't know if someone's gonna shout out Alicia Crampton in five years because of their really cool, weird music they're making, you know? So I guess time time will tell, but uh, I hope so. I hope, yeah. I, I mean, also like as an A&R for Blueberry, it's really exciting because I hope I am, my finger is on the pulse where I can pick up some things that are gonna be really, really cool and at the beginning of, of something new, you know? I'd rather get something at the beginning than something that's already proven to be good in the middle.